The week before Labor Day weekend, I was speaking uh, at the University of Valley Forge in uh, the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area, and the university has a Facebook page, and they put a picture of me on their Facebook page from when I was speaking. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of yourself that you weren't prepared for. Like when you open up your phone and you think the camera's facing the other way, and it's actually facing you, and you're like, ah. <laughs> how could someone love me? Um, but I saw this picture, and it was one of those wake-up call moments where I was like, oh my goodness. And I was traveling with a longtime buddy, Jonathan Valletta, and I said to Jonathan, I said, dude, this Monday, I'm back on the wagon. I'm, I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to start losing weight again. And then I remembered that Monday was uh, Labor Day, and I was going to the fair. <laughs> so then I was like, Jonathan, Tuesday, <laughs> I'm back on the wagon. And uh, I did. Starting uh, the Tuesday after Labor Day, I've gotten back on the wagon, uh, eating healthy uh, and uh, trying to exercise. Now, losing weight, as hard as it is to do, I mean, I think we all would agree losing weight is hard to do. One of the reasons it's hard is is because of discipline and because of how good food tastes. But what's not hard about losing weight is it's really not complicated, is it? Like, it's not like a great mystery. It's pretty clear When you want to lose weight, if you want to be healthy, basically you have to spend more calories than you take in. You can't take in more calories than you spend. And so it's really not that complicated. I know there's other layers of it, but that's, that's one of the main layers. And so when I, when I uh, try to lose weight, I do what's called calorie counting. And I have an app on my phone that helps me, and I keep track of everything I'm eating. And I, I add up my calories so that I stay under the amount that I want to stay under. But then the other thing I do is that I go to the YMCA and I work out, and I take those calories and I throw them back into my calorie count. So when I'm working out, I'm actually gaining calories that I can then eat. So when I'm, uh, when I'm at the gym working out and the, the elliptical or the treadmill is counting the calories for me, I don't actually see numbers. I see food. <laughs> like I see different items of food. So when I'm running uh, and, and I see 40 calories, I'm like, that's a piece of bacon. Like I can, have a, I can go home and have a piece of bacon. When I see 80 calories, I know that's a chicken wing. I can get a chicken wing. When I see 150 calories, I can go to a Chinese restaurant and get an egg roll. And so if someone asked me after I work out, how many calories did you burn? My answer would sound something like this. One egg roll, two chicken wings, and half a piece of bacon. Because that's kind of how I think. You know, if you, it's simple though. If you, if you burn more calories than you take in, you tend to lose weight. It's not complicated. And if you take in more calories than you spend or give out, you tend to gain weight and you tend to be less healthy. It's pretty simple. So what happens when the churchgoer takes in week after week, month after month, year after year, and never gives out. What happens when the person shows up to church every week to get theirs, but never ever gives out? In other words, what happens when the church gathers, but the church doesn't scatter? And so we're continuing in our series called Be the Church. And last week we talked about being the church that gathers. And this morning we're going to talk about being the church that scatters. Last week, we defined the church as the people of God saved by the power of God for the purposes of God. Last week, 
the conclusion that we came to was this. If you are being the church, you will go to church. But here's the tension we're going to work through this week. You can go to church and not actually be the church. Be the church that scatters. We're going to learn this from Philippians chapter 2. This is a, a letter that the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, he writes it to this church that he planted in Philippi, which is this region, this Macedonian region. These are Gentile believers uh, in Macedonia, this church at Philippi that Paul plants and is visited and, and loves. This is uh, interesting. Um, one of the interesting things about Philippians is that this is one of the four prison epistles. We know that Paul was sitting in prison in Rome, either under house arrest or in an actual Roman jail in prison, when he wrote Philippians, which is amazing because Philippians is so encouraging and so much about joy. And here's Paul sitting in jail. Isn't it amazing the little things that can rob our joy? Doesn't take much, does it? Uh, my sports team loses. I've lost my joy. Somebody cuts me off in traffic. I've lost my joy. I buy a piece of fruit that's not ripe and fresh and ready for me to eat. All of a sudden, I'm like, God, where are you? What are you doing right now? We lose our joy. Paul's sitting in jail, and he's writing this letter, and his theme is he's trying to encourage the church to live out their lives as citizens of a heavenly colony, saying, you're part of a heavenly colony. You're a citizen. Live out your life that way, evidenced by a growing commitment to serve God and to serve each other. So we're going to look closely at Philippians chapter 2, the opening verses of that chapter, and we're going to see this morning three characteristics of the church that scatters. And the first one is this, the church that scatters shares one mind. The church that scatters shares one mind. And let's look at verse 1 and verse 2 of Philippians chapter 2. It says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, which means unified together, and of one mind. The church that scatters shares one mind. Now, verse 1, Paul starts by saying, if. If. Now, does Paul not know? Is Paul not convinced? Is Paul not sure if there's any love in Christ, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if he's not sure? No, that's not what's happening here. Well, sometimes we'll, we'll be out to eat as a family, and uh, I'll say something like this to one of my daughters towards, towards the end of our meal. I'll say, hey, if I am the one who pays for the house we live in, if I'm the one who pays all the bills, if I'm the one who pays the monthly bill for the car that got us here, and if I'm the one that paid for the gas to get us here, and if I'm the one that's paying for the meal, then give me a bite of your burger, right? <laughs> so in that case, I'm saying if, but it's not because I'm unsure, it's because I'm trying to give them something. I'm trying to give them what's called the gift of perspective, the gift of perspective. In light of all of these things, do this. And Paul's doing this here. Paul is really warmly and gently inviting the church to reflect on all the blessings that they've experienced because they're part of the people of God, saved by the power of God for the purposes of God. And he's bringing these up in conversation so that he can ground his next request in one of these, in all of these things that he just said. 
So his next request is have the same mind, have one mind. So Paul's saying, since all of these blessings are yours in Jesus Christ and in the community of the saints, please have the same mind. Because the church that scatters shares one mind. This word mind in the Greek, uh, one of the commentators, his name is Richard Mellick, he, he says this. This is really helpful and interesting. He says, yes, it speaks to the intellect, but it goes beyond that. So it's not just think the same way. Here's what else it means. It incorporates the will and the emotions into a comprehensive outlook that affects the attitude With this word and the context in which it occurs, Paul is speaking of the values and ambitions that surface through our minds. This is unity. It's not found in an identical lifestyle or personality. Paul's not saying, I want you all to be clones. He's saying it occurs when Christian people have the same values and the same loves. And Paul is looking for that in this church in Philippi. And God is looking for it in our church today. Have one mind. Have you ever noticed that great organizations, great companies, great teams, they have one mind? Some of you work in places where you experience that. Some of you work in places where you wish you experienced that. But if you ever go to Disney World with your family and you're walking around, I guarantee you every single person that works there that you run into, they have one thing in their mind and it's your enjoyment. They're out there for you. They have the same value of hospitality and and care, and they're looking out for you because they share this one mind that this is supposed to be the greatest place on earth. And I'm gonna do everything I can, whether I'm sweeping the streets or whether I'm running a ride or whether I'm working in a store, we're all on the same page. We have the same mind. Uh, Chick-fil-A is a great example of an organization that works for one mind. Thank God that we have one finally coming to the area by God's grace. Now, you can't, you can't go there after church on Sundays, though. That's the only thing. They're not open on Sundays. So um, that's one conviction I don't know that I'm convinced they should have, but they have it. And uh, so, but anytime you go to Chick-fil-A and you order something, no matter what you say to them, no matter what your interaction with them is like, at the very end, they always say to you, my pleasure. Not your welcome, nothing else. There's no variation. They've been trained. They've been indoctrinated. They're drinking the Kool-Aid. They're in on the culture. They have one mind, and it helps to make Chick-fil-A the organization and the company that it is. You know, Wegmans actually has some of these traits, too. If you, if you go to Wegmans, I, I go to Wegmans quite frequently, and every time I come up to the cash register, I have the exact same conversation. It doesn't matter if it's a teenager, if it's an adult, if it's a senior citizen, if it's morning, day, or night. When I go through the line, the very first thing they say to me after hello is, did you find everything you're looking for or everything you need? Which I actually think is a strange question to ask at that point. Because it's sort of like, if I hadn't, I wouldn't be here. Like, this is the end of the line in this store, right? Like, there's nothing else to do. But they, they always ask that question because they have one mind, one way of thinking. And Paul is saying the church should be a church that scatters. It should go many directions. We should all leave here in a little bit and go in many different directions. But as we go, as we even distance ourselves from each other physically, we should have the same mind. No matter where you are, whether you live in Liverpool, North Syracuse, Baldinsville, the city of Syracuse, wherever the church is, one mind. Now, what kind of mind is Paul talking about? And for us to answer that question, we have to actually look into the end of Philippians chapter 1. I think you know this, but the, the, the chapters and the verses were added later, right? 
and they're very helpful because otherwise how would we find things and reference things? But when this was first written, this is just one long letter that Paul wrote and it was most likely read out loud in a public setting like this in one setting. All four chapters of the Philippians would have been read together. And so when we see something in chapter two and we're wondering what kind of mind is Paul talking about, this is just a good Bible study method for you. Don't be afraid to go back to the previous chapter. There's no rules that say you can't. In fact, it's important that you do. And in verse 27, we find the answer that we're looking for. Here's the type of mind. Paul writes in verse 27 of Philippians 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, he's saying whether I'm next to you or whether I'm here in Rome, I want to hear of you that you are, listen to this, you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, and now he describes that mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. One mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And what we see in this short little phrase is three things. Number one, striving means that we're going to have to fight for this. This is not easy. It's very hard. You try to decide as a family, we have three little girls. When we try to decide where we're going out to eat, we can't get one mind. I mean, I can't, I got to figure out a new system because someone ends up crying and upset because we didn't go to Moe's and instead we went to Panera or we went to this place. I mean, you can't even get one mind between two people, husband and wife trying to figure out where to go. How are all of us being as different from each other as we are? How are we gonna have one mind? Well, it's not going to happen easily. That's why it means, that's why Paul says you gotta strive for this. You gotta work for this. You gotta be committed to this. You gotta sacrifice for this. The only way we're gonna have one mind as a church is if all of us are leaning in and committed to having one mind. And then Paul says it's side by side, which means we stand together. Side by side means you can't do it alone. That's obvious. In order to be side by side, there has to be at least one other person next to you. So we're striving, we're striving together, and it's for the faith of the gospel, which is our great hope. But Paul, Paul knew, and he was concerned deeply for this church. And what he knew was it's very easy for us as humans to get distracted. Very easy to get distracted. How many, well, don't raise your hand, but how many of you, when you, you go to prayer, all of a sudden, it's like every distraction that you've been able to not think about all day comes crashing in on your mind. Actually, one time I, I read somebody, this is not in my notes, but somebody said, sometimes those distractions are actually your real needs and desires breaking through, so just pray about them. Like, instead of trying to fight, fight them off, whatever is coming to mind, just pray about the situations, pray about the situation, and then keep going. That's been helpful for me. But we get easily distracted, and Paul knows the church can very easily get divided in its thinking and in its mind and its focus and its values and in its loves. And soon enough, you have a church that values things that it shouldn't value. We don't have the same mind. Here's some things that I think sometimes the church today can get distracted by. Sometimes I think the church today can get distracted by building a kingdom here and now on earth. This is called nationalism. We put our hope in, a, in America, and we, we think that building America is what God's called us to do, and so we put our hope in that. For some people, the distraction in church is advancing a political agenda, that the reason why we're part of the church is so that we can get people to see things the way we see from a political standpoint. Sometimes the church gets distracted, and their whole mind is about staying safe from the big, bad world as, far, as opposed to scattering and being light in darkness. The church can be distracted by chasing after mystical experiences or running from one emotional high to another. The church can get distracted by being the self-assigned morality police for society. Oh, it's our job to tell everybody when they've done something wrong. And I'm gonna use every social media outlet I have to do so. The church can get distracted by attacking other churches who have slightly different beliefs. Than them. You see how easily the church is distracted. The church can get distracted by programs 
by activities, by doing stuff. And these are not bad things necessarily. It's not that the church is at danger of being distracted by bad things. The church is always in danger of being distracted by things that are not the main, the main thing. And the main thing is that we would strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. When the church is more concerned about these things than striving side by side for the gospel, then we are not being the church that scatters because the church that scatters shares one mind. The second thing we see in this text about the church that scatters is that the church that scatters or is sent considers others first. The church considers others first. And Paul, in verses three and four, look what he says to here. He says, do nothing do nothing. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear. That's a pretty big blanket statement. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest or her own interest, but also to the interest of others. Is there a more difficult command in all of Scripture? Do nothing out of selfishness. Do nothing out of ambitious conceit. But in everything, consider other people before I consider myself. Before little old me. Before I get mine. Before I take care of myself. I'm supposed to think about you. It's interesting. Our society... um, celebrates confidence. It really does. And it even sometimes celebrates brashness in athletes and in certain, certain artists and stuff. But I've, I've realized it only celebrates it to a point. At some point, society will start to push back on confidence and arrogance. At some point, it's too much. There's a limit, actually, in our society to how much we will award and applaud somebody for their arrogance. There's a limit. However, I think our society celebrates humility to any degree. Like, you're never going to hear anybody say, that person's just too humble. They're just way too thoughtful of other people. They're way too considerate. However, before the New Testament era, before this stuff was written, humility was never a respected value in that culture. It was always seen as weakness. Nobody thought humility was a good thing. So one of the most shocking things that came out of Jesus' life and Jesus' teachings was the ethic of being humble and the ethic of looking out for others and not looking out for yourself. It would have made no sense in this time. And here Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Now, the word that Paul uses here for humility is different than the one he uses later that we're gonna read about Jesus humbling himself. This is different. This is actually, Paul is using a word that is a very specific type of humility. This is a very specific type. And this is the best way to understand this word humility. It is assessing yourself appropriately, seeing yourself rightly, especially in the light of your own sinfulness. That's what Paul's saying here. In light of your own sinfulness, consider others. Think of others first. So it's not just humility sort of in a general way. There's a specific type of humility. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes these words. He says, the saying is trustworthy and full of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul's saying, Christ came to save sinners and I'm the worst. 
I'm the, now, was Paul literally at that point in his life the, the most active sinner in the world? No, he wasn't. But here's what it means. When the Holy Spirit has a hold of your heart in a convicting, guiding, truthful way, you'll, you'll always have such a sense of your own brokenness and need for Christ that you'll never consider yourself to be more holy or righteous than somebody else. You'll just always be mindful of God's grace at work in your life. Paul's saying here, when you consider the truth of who you are and where you were and where Christ has brought you from, it helps you to realize, I'm not superior to anyone. I'm not superior in any way. I've been saved by grace. I'm being kept by grace. Jesus left the 99 to come find me. And Jesus considered me over himself. And so my response, what is the worshipful response of the believer? It's to consider others more significant than ourselves and to look out for other people's interest and not just our own. And actually, to look out for other people's interest even when it collides sometimes with our own. Last Tuesday, Jason, our church administrator, sent out an email. We had a need in the church, an anonymous need for different things. 12 or 13 items were listed. And within 48 hours, every single one of those things was provided. That's because we're a church that's looking out for others. You don't even know who that, if you gave, and some of you probably wanted to give, but you were too late, you don't even know who it's going to. You're not getting any credit for it. They're not going to know who you are. But you don't need that, do you? Because of the humility that you're finding in Christ, you can consider the needs of someone else to be greater than your own. And in the last two weeks, we received offerings on Sunday morning to help support Convoy of Hope, an organization that's on the ground both in Texas and in Florida, trying to help the recovery efforts as it relates to Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma. And some of you may have seen this this week on Facebook, but I'm so excited to say that in those two weeks, this church sacrificially and generously gave $2,500 to Convoy of Hope in two weeks. So praise God for his work in us and through us. This is what it looks like to to meet the needs in the community, to meet the felt needs in the community, the the needs of others, and to do it without really an agenda. Sometimes they say, well, the church should serve as long as I get to present the gospel at the end of it, we'll come and serve. No, when you're serving, you're presenting the gospel. It's the gospel seen. It's the gospel experienced. It's the gospel demonstrated. Well, we do need the gospel preached and declared and taught also, but never see serving as just a means to an end. Serving is the heart of your heavenly father. Serving was the heart of Jesus who said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my precious life as a ransom for many. And so we need to consider others. If we're gonna be a church that scatters, if we're gonna be a church that is sent, if we're gonna be a church that lives out the purposes of God and embraces the mission of God, then we have to be willing to consider others always, Always consider others. Even, by the way, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we should be considering the quote-unquote other. Who's the person here that's, that's new, that's a visitor, that's not familiar with what we do? And so that's why we have things like somebody greeting them at the door so that when somebody walks in, if somebody were walk into your house as a visitor, you would run out of your way to go greet them and to say hello. They're the guest of honor. And so we, need to, we have that ministry, that important ministry. Maybe you didn't even know that exists but maybe you're the sort of person who can smile and shake hands. Well, we, we, we would love to have you serving and greeting people on Sunday morning and welcoming them as they show up. That's why we have ushers to help the people that are new find seats and learn about our facility. Even the way that we care for, even the way that we clean and take care of the facilities is not just for us, is it? Please don't let it just be for us. It's for others. 
We're considering others because when people walk into a room, they immediately assess the cleanliness of the room. They assess the decorations in the room. And so we need to be willing as a church to say, not what do I prefer, but what will help them? And anything that will be an obstacle to an unbeliever or to an unchurched person, to an outsider person, even if it's a preference for us, we gotta be willing in humility to lay it down and say it's, it's for them because we're not a church that just gathers, we're a church that scatters. We need to make it easy for people who come into this church for the first time to find things. That's why not too long ago, my dad had the signs added so you could see where the gym is and where the nursery is. You need, you need signage. We need to greet. When you see someone come in that you don't recognize, you should make a beeline for them and greet them because you're not here for yourself. You're here for them. We consider the unbeliever even in our planning and the, the unchurched even in our planning. That's why, by the way, did you notice this morning during the announcements, I said, in a minute, we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing three songs. A lot of you don't care, and a lot of you actually know we're going to sing three songs. Some of you are like, we can sing 30 songs, and I would stay here all day. It doesn't matter, because you're in it. You get it. It makes sense to you. But that little bit of information helps somebody who's visiting, because in the middle of the third song, they might be standing there wondering, how long are we going to sing? (laughs) How many songs are we singing this morning? So just answering little questions like that, putting the names of people who are speaking up on, those are ways that we are considering others first in our preaching, in the songs that we sing, explaining the words that might be confusing, and even in the way that the spiritual gifts are used and operate in the gathering. Paul teaches very clearly in 1 Corinthians 14, you better consider the unbeliever in your midst. Otherwise, you're just kind of having a spiritual feel-good time. But it's not just for us. You know, most clubs... Most membership-style organizations, the longer you've been in it, the more it's set up for you. You know that, right? Most clubs, whether you join a golf club or whether you're part of an organization where you have to become a member, you know, you have a little card that says member since 2011, member since 1995. And the longer you've been a member, usually the more they're trying to accommodate you. Oh, you know, they, they, they learn your style, they learn your preferences, and you kind of have this sense of privilege over the person who just signed up yesterday. But please, the church should never be that. The church is the exact opposite of that. We exist for those, the church is the one organization that exists for those who aren't in it yet. We're a community who exists for those who aren't part of our community yet. This is what it means. If you're here this morning and you're a regular or you're a member, then you should be the first to lay down your rights and preferences for others. You should be the first to be willing to say, I don't have to have my way. It doesn't have to look like I want it to look. It doesn't have to be the way it's always necessarily been because I'm thinking about those who need to hear about this great gospel. When a first-timer walks in the door, he or she is the guest of honor, the guest of honor. And so we consider others because the church that scatters considers others first. And then lastly this morning, the church that scatters runs or moves toward need. The church that scatters moves, runs toward need. Doesn't sit back, isn't passive, doesn't wait for people to come, but goes after people. The next part of this passage that we're going to read is called the Christ Hymn. This is one of the most beautiful parts of the New Testament. And there's sort of this debate about the Christ Hymn. When Paul writes these words in verses 5 and on, Is he trying to just inform our theology about who Jesus is? Is he simply trying to give individual Christians an example of how they should live? Or is he actually trying to paint a picture of how the church should function? There's a lot of debate about it. And I actually think the answer is probably yes, all of that. 
This informs our theology. It provides us with an example of how to live. But this morning, how I want us to see it as, this is a snapshot of the head of the church. We're the body. He's the head. So how he lives is how we should live. So as we read this, this is going to give us a a picture of who we should be as the people of God. Let's read verses 5 through 8. Paul continues, have this mind, he's going back to the word mind, one mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse six, who though he was in the form of God, he was in the form of God, meant he had the privileges and the rights and the responsibility of deity. It doesn't mean that he was not God taking on the form of God. He was God. He was in the form of God. He did not equate, or he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that word grasped means to be kept and exploited for your own benefit or advantage. And Jesus laid it down. He laid down equality with God, not for his benefit and advantage, but for ours, for yours, for mine. Verse seven, it says, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, this is the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying here that Christ ran towards the need. Jesus moved towards us. This is a doctrinal term that we use called the incarnation. And you hear about this a lot at Christmas time because the incarnation, which literally means in the flesh, means that Jesus came and became flesh, that Jesus came and wrapped himself in flesh and wrapped himself in the human experience and he came near. He overcame the distance. He overcame the obstacles. He overcame everything to come to us. And because Jesus did that, because Jesus came in the flesh to seek and save those who are lost, the church should be marked by the same sort of incarnational mindsets in the same sort of incarnational existence, which means we move towards need. We run towards need. We don't sit back passively. Can you imagine if Jesus just sat up in heaven and said, I hope they can figure out how to get up here. I got some really good things for them. I'm gonna turn water into wine. You're gonna like that. I wanna do this. He comes near. He becomes one of us. And his people should do the same. That's why it's so crucial that we scatter because if we're just gathering, we're not actually living out the incarnational mandate that is on the people of God. You gotta go. You gotta get out. Yes, come and see. Yes, come and sing. But also, man, go and find. Go out and get them. Go out and find them and go out and share life with them. The church should be marked by this, this overcoming every obstacle to get to those who need to hear and experience the gospel. But you know what's happened sometimes in the church world? We have our little services and we say to the people out there, you overcome all the obstacles. You travel the distance to get to us. You make yourself uncomfortable and walk into our world. You know that, you ever have that experience, this is maybe a while ago for some of you, but when, you are, when, you're, when you're dating somebody and the first time you go to their family gathering and you're like trying to first off not make a fool of yourself, not eat too much, not spill on your shirt, not, but you're also at the same time, you're trying to pick up cues, aren't you? And clues. How do we do this? What's the right way to do it? Because my family does it this way, but I'm not with my family anymore. And so it's a little awkward, a little uncomfortable, but you're just trying to like pay attention. And that's how people feel when they walk into church, when they've never been in church or they haven't been in church for a long time or they've not been in a church like ours. They're looking around going, do we stand? Do we sit? 
How long are we singing? Why is that person doing that? This sort of thing. And they're trying to, and, we're, and we just say, well, you know, that's just the way it is, by the way. This is who we are. You better just deal with it and get used to us. And on one level, we, we're not going to compromise the truth of the gospel that we teach and preach and build the foundation of the church on. But on the other hand, why do they have to overcome all the obstacles to come to us? That's not incarnational. That's the reverse of it. And so how do we scatter and not just gather. Here's some questions maybe for you to consider as you're sitting there this morning. What needs exist in your neighborhood? What needs exist in your community? What needs exist in your city? I'm convinced that sometimes we can actually get so busy doing church things that we miss opportunities to do things in the community that actually are more in keeping with the heart of God, more in keeping with the incarnational approach of Jesus. And so what are the, where are the needs? Does, is there a local drop-in center or, or, or a mentoring program? Something in your school, in your school district? Some, maybe some schools just need trusted adults to come and hang out during lunchtime or, or, or whatever it is. But what are those needs? And are we looking for them? Are we asking God to open doors for us? Or are we saying, well, if you've got a need, we have a, we have a food bank and we have service. If you have a need, come here as opposed to saying, where is the need? How do I get there? How do I move towards it? How do I run towards it? What needs exist in your neighborhood, in your community, in your city? Here's another question to ask yourself. How can you make your community a better place to live? How can you work for the good of the city, for the flourishing of the city? And then the question that's probably most obvious is this. Which of your friends need Jesus? Which of your coworkers, which of the kids that you go to school with need Jesus? Let me just say this. Before you invite them to sit in one of these seats, please invite them to sit in a seat in your house at your table or sit in a seat with you across from you at Starbucks having a cup of coffee or sit in a seat next to you at a Syracuse Chiefs game. Don't just, yes, please invite them here. We want to see them grow and be a part of the church that gathers. But ultimately, if that's the first seat you invite them to sit in, I'm not sure that we're being the church that scatters. I'm worried we're just trying to be a church that gathers. And if we just take in and we don't give out, there's a health issue. There's a real health issue. And so inviting people not just into our church, which we want, but inviting them into our lives. Church activity is never just what happens inside these walls. Church activity should happen everywhere you are. Everywhere you are, you're the church. Anything you do, anytime, anywhere, that's church activity because you're being the church, and many of you do that on a regular basis. See, the mission of God, this is really what we're talking about. I haven't used this word very much yet, but what we're really talking about this morning is being a church that's on the mission of God. Remember we said the church is the people of God, saved by the power of God for the purposes of God. Well, the purpose of God is the mission of God. And so as I wrap up here, I just want to talk to you about the mission of God and where it started. It started all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when God says, through a man named Abram, who eventually he changed his name to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world. And let me just read to you quickly these three verses. This is the calling of Abram, and this is the calling that still comes to us today. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. His first word is go, get up and get out. Not sit here, I'm gonna send them all to you. Go, get up and get out. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, will, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in this passage, God gives Abram a mission and a blessing. Here's the mission. Leave everything you know and follow me. 
Leave everything that's familiar to you. Leave everything that's comfortable for you and trust me. And the blessing is this. I will provide everything you need. And in fact, through you, I will bless the entire world. And of course, Jesus descends from the line of Abraham to provide blessing for the entire world. Now, in the, very, in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, there's a very familiar Bible story called the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, the problem is, is that the people say, we're gonna settle in this one place. We're gonna find our way up to heaven or we're gonna create a place where heaven will come down to us and we're gonna make our name great. So in one chapter, you have people saying, we're gonna settle and make our name great. And the next chapter, God comes to Abraham and says, you need to scatter. You need to scatter. That's why the Tower of Babel story ends the way it does. It's not so much a punishment on the people, it's to advance the mission of God, to scatter people. God didn't say stay here. He said spread out, multiply, fill the earth because he's ascending God. He is ascending God. And if you're living out your faith in such a way that the only time that you think about God and interact with God is when you feel like he draws you to this building, then there's something you're missing because he doesn't just draw you in to keep you and he draws you in always to send you out. If God's brought you in, it's for his mission. Anytime God calls us, it's the same call that came to Abraham. Get up and get out. If you're a Christian, God has brought you in to send you out. God did not save you just to get you to heaven. God did not save you just to make your life better or to make you a nicer person. God did not save you to give you new social activity or a new community or to rearrange your calendar, to change how you dress, how you vote, what you watch, where you go, how you live. He didn't bring you in to make you comfortable. He brought you in to send you out because the mission of God is why the church of God even exists. If there was no mission, there'd be no church. This is, what, this is how Christopher White, a missiologist, says it. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. Does that make sense? It's not like God had a bunch of people who's like, how am I gonna keep him busy? Oh yeah, I'll give him something to do. Here's your mission. No, it was God had a mission to bless the entire world and he thought, how am I gonna carry out the mission? Oh, I know how. I need a people. I need the people of God saved by the power of God for the purposes of God. There's no such thing, listen to this, there's no such thing as an unsent Christian. There's no such thing as an unsent church. If you've been brought in, you're being sent out. You might say, well, that sounds a little uncomfortable. I mean, I kind of like just showing up on Sundays. That sounds a little inconvenient. I kind of like six days of my life to myself, six days of my week to myself. It sounds, sounds kind of costly. And all I can say is, you're right. Move, considering others first, moving toward need, it will cost you something. It will always cost you something. But what did it cost Jesus to move towards us? Well, verse eight says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we see what it costs Christ to move towards us, it so melts and moves our hearts that we're now willing to lay things down to pick up our cross and to move towards those in need. You know what the cost is if there's a church that doesn't scatter? Families and communities live and die without experiencing and seeing the gospel at work. That's what's at risk. That's what's at stake. Your community, your neighborhood, our town, our city, our state, generations coming and going and not realizing there's a God who loves me enough to move towards me and his people love me that way too. The church gathers so that we can scatter.
we gather to scatter. That's the rhythm of the church. We gather together to come around the gospel, to draw near to God, to do the things we talked about last week. But then when we're done gathering, we scatter with one mind to consider others and to move towards need. And let's finish by reading the rest of this passage. Paul says in verse nine, therefore, because of everything Jesus did, here's how Paul wraps it up. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here's what Paul is saying. God the Father exalted Jesus Christ, not in spite of his humility and not in spite of his humiliation, but because of it. Because Jesus humbled himself, because Jesus went to the cross, because of that, therefore, God now exalts the Son up so that we can worship and adore him. And the same is true for the church. As we humble ourselves, God will exalt the church. God will work on behalf of the church, Jesus will build his church. And so this morning, let's humble ourselves so that we can share one mind, so that we can consider others first, and so that we can run towards the need, knowing that God will do the work of exalting his church because we are being the church that scatters. Let's pray together this morning.